So do you ever think people are asking the wrong questions? For example, a teen boy wakes up on Saturday morning, sleepily walks into the kitchen, disheveled hair all over the place, eyes half shut. He plops himself down at the kitchen table in his jammies, yawns out loud, and asks, Hey, Mom, what are you going to make me for breakfast? And Mom is like, Son, you are 17 years old. The refrigerator is right there. The pantry is a few steps further. And if you want cereal, you know where the bowls and spoons are. You can ask me what's in the fridge. You can ask me what's in the pantry. You can even ask me how to fry an egg. But you are asking the wrong question. I'm not making your breakfast. Do it yourself. Or a man, he's facing a midlife crisis. And he wants to do something great to feel good about himself. So he starts asking, what can I do to be younger and feel like the stallion I once was? And his wife says, honey, just face it. You're not a spring chicken anymore. You're turning gray and you have a receding hairline. You should be asking questions like, how can I maximize my 50s and 60s with my wife and family? Not asking how you can return to the glory of your 30-year-old self. Last, a student going into really a difficult semester. And she asks the question, when, when will the torment and weight of school be over? To which the teacher replies by saying, the semester will come to an end, it will. But you should be asking a different question. How do I endure through this semester? How do I form good study habits to make the most of the semester when it comes to an end? So oftentimes we are asking the wrong questions, especially wrong questions about certain passages of the Bible. In Mark 13, we come to a place where the disciples and we ourselves are in the shoes of the disciples. We are asking oftentimes the wrong question. And what might that wrong question be? It's the question of God's timing. When will God take the next step? When will it happen, Lord? When are all of these things going to take place? And you notice here that the question of timing comes up, but as Jesus so often does, he takes the question that has been asked and he does not answer it directly. In fact, he redirects our attention away from the timing of events to how we should live as Christians. So this morning, we are entering into Mark chapter 13. And if you received an email earlier this week that talked about the sermon and had the title of the sermon and had a paragraph, you can just disregard all of that. Because as you can see, we even have a different title that says endure. And in that paragraph, I said, we hope to cover all of chapter 13. And in my mind, I thought chapter 13 is very much like one continuous river. At times it might get a little skinny and other times it swells up a little bit. But the best thing for us would be to cover chapter 13 all in one sermon. And that probably still is the best thing, but I'm not able to do the best. 
I started writing the sermon. Uh, normal life in the week starts with me opening books on Tuesday and then opening more books on Wednesday and then on Thursday. And by Thursday afternoon, I try to submit a title and a paragraph to what will be going out on Friday. Well, I started writing Friday and it kept growing. This did, in fact. A normal sermon is about 3,500 words on paper. And so this kept growing through Friday afternoon and I thought, hmm, I'll come back Saturday and I'll cut the fat and we'll just go lean and get through the whole chapter. Well, I couldn't cut it and it kept going to 4,500, 5,500, over 6,000 words. And I thought, oh mercy, you guys are gonna send me back out for another vacation and ask that guy Wayne to come back in and keep it short. So here's what we're doing. We're going to go through verse 23. And I anticipate that you will have many questions. And my hope is that the questions will get answered along the way. Some of you really love to study end times theology. And chapter 13 has end times theology woven into it. Others of you could say, hey, can you just tell me what is going on in this chapter and what I should walk away with this week? All those charts and graphs and arrows and all that up and down stuff doesn't interest me one bit. I want to know what I'm supposed to do this week. So we're going to try to blend a lot of things into the next couple of weeks. So Pastor Mike read verses 1 and 2. Let's continue reading verses 3 down to verse 13. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? You remember verses 1 and 2, Jesus said, there's not going to be one stone that's remaining. So they asked that question in verse 4, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But... Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, so let's pause there. What do you see in these first 13 verses? What does Jesus want for his disciples in that moment? And what does Jesus want for us now living in 2023? 
you can see that what Jesus wants, first and foremost, is not a very personal knowledge about the timing of events. You see the question coming up in verses 1 and 2, where the disciples are walking through Jerusalem, walking through the Temple Mount, admiring all of these buildings and the beauty of these buildings. The temple was an architectural attraction at the time to even the surrounding nations and people would come. They thought this was an amazing feat that Herod had accomplished and finished. Originally Solomon's temple was destroyed. Herod came along, built and added to it. And so folks would come and they would, they would admire this, this beauty and so the disciples say, what, what amazing buildings. And it truly was. You study some of the history on this, and there is one part of the temple that's left. It's more of a foundational wall, not the building. And this place that's left has amazingly big stones that have been put there. Some that are 40 feet long and weighing over a million pounds. The kinds of things that we just kind of steer clear of today. We wouldn't want to have to move those things around. But they did with their ingenuity 2,000 plus years ago. That part that's still remaining today is what many people refer to as the wailing wall or the weeping wall. I think the Jews who are there that pray at that refer to it as the praying wall. So there's that, the, that part that's still there. Everything else has been destroyed. And, and the disciples are on the front side of that destruction, enjoying the magnificence of this building. And Jesus says, it's all going to be taken down. And so they respond back with, well, when? When is that going to happen? And Jesus hears their question, and he moves through this paragraph, and the emphatic statement at the end is what he wants them to hear first and it's a call to endurance. What is endurance? It's the act of persevering in your trust of God through difficult circumstances. It's persevering in your trust of God through difficult circumstances. It's the act in which you don't quit. It's the runner who is in the race and he knows that there's a finish line somewhere up ahead, but he continues to press on in spite of the pain and keeps running. And Jesus is saying, okay, lift your joints up. Keep moving. Endure in following me because hard times are going to come and, and they will be difficult. You think about hard times that have come throughout for even characters in the Bible and it makes it a challenge for us to believe. You think about Moses out in the wilderness who faced the complaints of a few million people and he was ready to say to God, I'm done. There were lapses in his faith. You think about Peter who was right there next to Jesus walking with him for three years and being called by Jesus to be one of the 12 and then be welcomed into the inner three and then following Jesus and seeing this movement grow from northern Judea and lots of people attracted to Jesus' teaching, then seeing the miracles that are taking place, hearing Jesus make sense of everything, being able to shut down the religious leaders, Peter saw it all and yet he had lapses in his faith. 
And we're just reminded that we need this call to endurance because there are lapses in our faith. There are challenges that come. And we don't throw in the towel. We might feel as though we stumbled and we might see stumbles along the way. But Jesus is saying, even when the difficult times come, stand up again, keep running, endure through the race. Now, why would these difficult times come? Again, verses 1 and 2, Jesus is making a prophecy about this magnificent temple building in Jerusalem being torn down. This prophecy, which was being made roughly in the year AD 30, came true in the year AD 70. What happened was several clashes took place between Roman soldiers and religious zealous Jews. The, the Roman soldiers had desecrated some of the synagogues and they actually went into the temple at one point and plundered the temple, took out some of the things and used those things to fund their religious cults. And this group of Jews said, we're done, we're done having this, we're done having this oppression. And so they banded together with some small armies and attacked some Roman legions of soldiers. Now, what should have happened, the Romans had the military prowess and the strength, and they should have been able to shut down these uprisings, but it didn't happen. The Romans stretched themselves a little too thin, the Jews got some victories, and it put some courage into their backbone, and they formed a movement. Well, this word about a Roman defeat gets all the way back up to Nero, who's the emperor in Rome, around AD 66 or so at the time. And Nero sends a general named Vespasian down into Judea with all of his might. And they begin just eating up anything that's in their way. Any Jewish resistance, Vespasian destroys. Along the way, Nero dies. Vespasian, he goes up to Rome. He becomes the emperor. And Vespasian's son, Titus, takes over the military. And in the year AD 70, Titus now having marched further south, comes up to the city of Jerusalem and lays siege to it. Cuts off all of the resources that are coming in. And if anybody's going to go out as a resistor or as, a, you know, as an enemy to Rome, he kills them. He's basically choking off the city. And for several months, they take their Roman machinery and start pounding on Jerusalem's walls. And in July of AD 70, a breach is formed. And when the Roman soldiers come in, they find a bunch of Jews who are malnourished, starving to death. And they just, it's a bloodbath. Historians from first, second century estimate that from this Roman conquest that moved from the north to the south and then eventually laid hold of, of Jerusalem say that could be exaggerated, that as many as one million Jews were killed during this. Now, what began this little protest was religion. And so what Titus said is, if what religion was, if it's religion that begins this, I'm going to end this religion. So he takes his soldiers not only into Jerusalem and just makes a bloodbath of everything. He goes up to the most beautiful part of Jerusalem, what Jesus is talking about with his disciples, the temple. They set fire to it and they burn the whole place down and tear down any stones that were left standing 
and it's done. Now, Jesus is talking about this in the year roughly A.D. 30. And by A.D. 70, if you were in any history class that had to study history in that part of the world, you know that this came to fulfillment. So let me just pause here for a second as we're getting started. If you're a non-Christian here today, one of the struggles for you is whether or not you can trust the Bible. And I want to pique your interest by pointing out the nature of prophecy in the Bible. These verses, just verses 1 and 2, and many others in Scripture talk about events long before they happened, sometimes centuries before they happened. And yet they come to fulfillment. And you, in your mind, need to answer the following question. Why is it that I am still refusing to believe in the Bible and Jesus when clearly he shows to have knowledge about the future that has been coming true and has come true? You have to settle that in your mind. I mean, you can't just wipe it off and say it, it didn't happen. This moment happened in AD 30 and was fulfilled in A.D. 70. And then a follow-up question I would just encourage you to ask. Since Jesus' knowledge of future events has been shown to be true, you have to wrestle with whether or not you are going to believe his statements about the future of the world, the future of Jesus coming back, and the future of your own soul. You have to wrestle with that non-Christian. And I would just invite you to explore the Bible more and see what does Jesus have to say about all of this and what should I do? And very frankly, he says, trust me, trust me, trust me. Christians, on the other hand, you come through verses 1 and 2, and these are enough for us to be encouraged once again that God is the all-knowing God who knows what is happening in the future. Your life, your future is all a part of his knowledge and plan. The events that are taking place in history are ordered by him to accomplish his purposes. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, such knowledge of God is too wonderful for us. Appreciate that. So the disciples, they hear that the buildings are going to be torn down and they ask, when is it going to happen? But Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus talks to them about spiritual endurance. And there's several categories that I'd like to cover here for the next few minutes. What does Jesus say that we should endure through? Number one is this. We should endure through religious deception. Endure through religious deception. Look at verse 5. They ask the question, but where does Jesus go? He says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Later on in the chapter, verses 21 to 23, you can turn the page there to that, says this, and if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. 
But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So here is Jesus. Look at Jesus tenderly caring for his disciples and his followers who are going to have to go through suffering and tribulation. And what happens when people go through suffering and tribulation? They're always looking for a Messiah who is going to deliver them from it. And it's just like Satan to come along and prop up individuals throughout history who put themselves on the scene and say, I can rescue you. Follow me. I think categorically, we see examples like a man named Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, who said he was the one who had a vision from heaven to bring the clear gospel to people again. He claimed, now people follow me. Never mind his 40 wives. He started a religion that has deceived millions of people. And Satan has done that on multiple levels. Where Satan will prop up religious people in order to lead them astray, promising deliverance for them. And Jesus says to his disciples there, just know, no, hard times are coming and there are going to be people who are going to deceive or try to deceive even the elect. Be aware of religious deception. Be aware of people who come along and say, I can deliver you because there's only one deliverer. There's only one Christ as we go back to the beginning of Mark. It's Jesus himself. But Christians... Let's go one concentric circle out. We know that the Messiah, the understanding of Messiah, is not simply a religious figure. The Jews are looking for the son of David, one who will sit on the throne, one who will rule and reign. There is a political aspect to this Messiah. And as we take that step outward, one step more, Christians, I just want to encourage you to not place your hopes in your political messiahs. There is no man or woman who can get into the White House who can save you and who can deliver. Every four years, we hear the promises made. And for the next four years, we see the promises unkept. Only Jesus can be your Messiah and your Savior. So Jesus calls us to endurance. Endurance in the sense of believe him, believe only him, follow only him, trust only him as your Christ. Endure through religious deception by following and trusting Jesus as your Savior. God has told you that the deceivers will come. Number two, endure through global upheaval, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says that there will be wars and rumors of wars. And, and remember, the disciples are asking the question, when is all of this going to happen? He hasn't answered it. He just goes on and says, now look, there's going to be wars and there's going to be rumors of wars. In verses 8 and 9, he says that nations will be rising up against nations. Earthquakes and famines are going to be taking place. And he says, these are just the beginning of the birth pains. We've had four kids. And 
each time we've gone into, well, Chris has gone into labor. We go to the hospital and voila, there's a baby that comes. But there are these early contractions, early birth pains that start, those Braxton Hicks things that, I don't know who Braxton was or who Hicks was, I don't know, but they start getting the muscles for the stomach toned up so that labor in the future can happen. And those contractions, those pains start to happen and then early labor starts to happen and the contractions are spread apart. Eventually, the challenge really comes when, when labor, like the ultimate birth happens. And Jesus says in very just common language, these events that are coming, wars, famines, earthquakes, all of these things, you're going to have to go through them, but just know that these are the beginnings of the birth pains. It's not the actual event that's going to take place. But what does Jesus say in order to go through these kinds of global upheavals here. He says in verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, he says this, do not be alarmed. That's a word for us this morning, isn't it? I mean, how many, how many minutes, how many hours did you spend watching the news this past week? And what is the news going to do for you? It is going to alarm you. And for some reason, we just love being alarmed because we keep going back to it. Oh, what alarming story can I find tonight? What alarming story can I find on the front page? Click, 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 click. We love to be alarmed. And Jesus says, do not be alarmed. When you hear of wars, Christians, do not be alarmed. When you hear of famines, do not be alarmed. When you hear of earthquakes, do not be alarmed. These have the potential of upsetting the way that we want to preserve our lives, don't they? We start focusing on our own self-preservation. What's going to be my tactic to get through this season? And so, you know, we gather things in and we make our bomb shelters and we put our survival stashes away and we get all worked up. And Jesus says, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. God has appointed these events in order to serve his purposes. Continuing on, verses 9 through 13, Jesus instructs us, endure through opposition. Endure through opposition. Verse 9, but be on your guard. And now it gets personal. Things start taking place in the individual's lives. And he says, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Now, as you go through this following section, Jesus clearly shows that there is going to be opposition People are going to face persecution. And as you go through the book of Acts, you can see this unfolding in the lives of his disciples. It doesn't take very long to see Peter and John being persecuted, brought before the religious leaders, being told, shut your mouth or else here are the consequences. Then put in prison. Then you see Stephen being the first martyr. James being put to death, Paul suffering throughout the book of Acts. And you see that there is going to be religious opposition that comes in the lives of the disciples. And Jesus said, man, if you intend to follow me, 
all those who follow me will be persecuted. And so the question isn't whether or not it's going to come. Here's Jesus' statement saying, endure through it, persevere through it. What I love that what Jesus does is he drops phrases in here to help us understand or help us be motivated for how we can endure. So let me start moving into point three here with now some several sub points. How can we endure through this? Endure through opposition knowing that suffering is for Christ. Endure knowing that suffering is for Christ. You see this again in verses 9 and 10, where he says, they're going to deliver you over to councils. You're going to be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings. And the question is, well, what did I do wrong? How could I have approached this better? What should my answer be next time? And Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, this is all going to happen as a part of my plan. Why is it going to happen? The last three words of verse 9. It's going to happen for my sake. To bear witness before them. In other words, it is God's plan that believers would actually face opposition. It's God's plan that we would be pressed. Why? Because in being pressed, God has a way of using that moment to scatter out the gospel in different places. So in verse 10, he makes a statement. The gospel must be first proclaimed to all of the nations. What is our tendency? Our tendency is to find our place of security, sit and stay there. As you look at the early church and the book of Acts and then the epistles that unfold after that, what persecution actually did was it drove the Christians out so that the gospel could be preached. When Peter writes 1 Peter, those opening verses there, he's writing to the diaspora, to the Christians that have been driven out to these other regions around the Mediterranean world. And so Jesus can say, hey, when you're dragged before people like this, when opposition, when persecution takes place, just know that it is my name, my purpose, my glory that is, that is going on right now. Endure knowing that you are doing this for Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Endure knowing that you have the help of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11. He says, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. Well, what's going to be given to me? Well, just wait until that hour comes. Well, who's going to be the giver? Look at the end of verse 11. For it is not you who speaks, but it is the Holy Spirit who speaks. Again, the book of Acts presents this in the lives of the apostles. They're brought before the religious leaders. They're asked questions. And in those moments, God gives them the answers that are needed. How are believers supposed to endure through religious opposition or through persecution? We endure knowing that in those moments, God will give us what we need to know. He's given us his word and he's given us his Holy Spirit. One of the precious promises that we have is that wherever we find ourselves, God is present with us. His Holy Spirit is present with us. We are the temple of God and he indwells us through his Holy Spirit. 
So take courage and endure knowing that this conversation might happen, that conversation might happen, but know this week that the Spirit of God is in you. Number three, endure by keeping the end in mind. Endure by keeping the end in mind. You see this as he moves through verses 12 and following. Brother's going to deliver brother over to death. The father is child. The children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It again pops up there. But what does he do? The one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus wants you to know, brothers and sisters, that there is a glorious salvation that is ready to be revealed to you in the last time. Press on. Do not quit. As Paul told the Romans, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You've been on those long road trips. Perhaps somebody in the back is saying, how long is it going to be? I remember my dad saying, hey, we're one wheel closer. Every time the wheel turns, you're one wheel closer. You're one wheel closer. And as we press on through life, we're on a journey. We're sojourners and pilgrims here. And you're asking, how long is this going to take place? Well, it's going to take place until you get to the end. And you have to endure through it, knowing that God has a complete and final installment of your salvation that will be yours when you reach there. And some ask the question, well, does this teach good works? Does this mean that I just have to do good works? And if I do good works, then I'll make it all the way to the end. You go through the gospel of Mark and what Mark and what Jesus has been teaching all the way along is there is a kind of faith that draws people to himself. And that kind of faith just attaches and says, okay, I'm going to follow. It's the faith that produces this endurance all along the way. And then you go to the book of James and James chapter 2. And James says, hey, if there's going to be manifestations of Christian work in your life, manifestations of obedience and helping others, where is that coming from? It's coming from the faith that is underneath all of those works. Faith produces works. So brothers and sisters, endure knowing that there is an end that's coming. Keep the end in mind. Okay, we move on to verses 14 through 23. Endure knowing that God determines the extent of suffering. God determines the extent of suffering. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Here it is, verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. 
Now, there's a lot going on here. I would encourage you to study it even in your own time, but let me just address a couple of things here as we sort of land the plane. First, you can't help but notice that phrase, the abomination of desolation. What's going on with that in verse 14? Well, this is not a phrase that is new to the disciples. This is a phrase that actually was used by the prophet Daniel three times. In Daniel 9, we read about this abomination, this act that is going to cause desolation. And it's a phrase that describes certain acts that will take place that are reprehensible, that are going to cause things to just desolate. So scholars of scripture, no matter what camp you're in, believe that the abomination of desolation that Daniel was talking about, that Daniel prophesied, came true in the year 168 B.C. So Daniel's writing several centuries before Christ. And what happened in 168 B.C. is this Syrian general named Antiochus Epiphanes, a Gentile in nature, he comes into Jerusalem, conquers it, and commits an abomination there. What was the abomination? Well, he's a pagan worshiper, and he brings a pig into the Jewish temple, sacrifices it in the Jewish temple to his god Zeus. And just commits this awful act there. And it was the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9 there. Now, Jesus says, hey, let these things be in mind. There's an abomination that's going to cause desolation. There's going to be an act that causes this place to be desolate. And in Luke's gospel, Luke helps us kind of understand what specifically Jesus was talking about here. Luke 21, verse 20. I don't have it on the screen. I'll just read it for you. This same parallel passage, Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, it's the same context here, then know that its desolation has come near. So I think in verse 14, when Jesus is talking about an abomination that causes desolation, I think he's talking about AD 70. I think he's talking about Titus coming in acting in abominable ways and causing this whole place to be desolate. So he says, just know that this is coming. And again, you see God's knowledge and his awareness of the extent of suffering that will take place. Now, let me do some sort of quick aside here. You are saying in your mind, maybe half of you, it seems to me that there's an overlap between the language of what happened in AD 70 to the language of what we read about and still anticipate in the future yet to come. And I would say yes. You see the same language from Daniel 9 that could still be language to come and yet still had fulfillments early on. There is language that seems to be forecasted into the future beyond AD 70. And if you want to look at next week's paragraph, verses 24 and following, you're going to say, Jesus, what are you talking about then, now, when? Keep in mind, we're asking the wrong questions, but they're still curious to us, right? We're still asking, when is this going to happen? But why does Jesus speak this way? Why does Jesus speak in layers that seem to have fulfillments that could take place in AD 70 or yet into the future? 
Why does the Bible present end times as though an event were happening as one event, not separated? Let me read a paragraph for you. James Edwards in the Pillar Commentary says this. If in Mark 13, the events associated with the incarnation, that is Jesus's life, if the events associated with Jesus's life are blended mysteriously with those of the parousia or the second coming of Christ, events which to our way of thinking are entirely separate, it may help to remember that in God's saving plan, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the parousia are all facets of one event. Rather like the way several separate mountain ranges are blended together as a single range of mountains when viewed from a, through a telescope. The first and second comings of God's Son, they comprise one event in the divine plan. Cranfield captures their unity this way. It was and still is true to say that the parousia is at hand. Ever since the incarnation, men have been living in the last days. Okay, let me summarize. There's language in the Bible that says we are in the last days. And that language goes all the way back to the lifetime of Jesus and the disciples. And so you're asking the question in your mind, when are these events to take place? And Edwards is saying, let's keep in mind that the scripture uses language that this can all be seen as one event. And so it's not uncommon for the writers of scripture to use or prophesy things that will take place in this event that are still coming but can still have fulfillments early on. Let me give you an illustration from the text. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's the Christmas verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Okay, let's keep moving. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Lord of hosts will do this. All right, let me just explain. For unto us a child is born. You're like, yeah, that's the Christmas story. Now I know when that took place. And these people are reading it back here in Isaiah's day, and they're seeing Jesus is going to come. And then you keep reading, and you say, well, he's going to sit upon the throne of David. And they're reading it saying, yep, the child is coming, and he's going to sit upon the throne of David. I see it as one event. And yet we're living on this side of Jesus' birth over here, and we're looking at when is he going to sit on the throne of David in a way in which he rules and reigns as the coming Messiah over all the world. You see, when people look at scripture, there are times where you are going to see events and prophecies that are being made, and they have kind of continuous effects all the way into the future. And so it's good for us, especially in our Western minds that want systematic, systematized, 
times and places and all of that kind of stuff, to come to a chapter like Mark 13 and say, man, this doesn't fit my system so neatly and cleanly. How does this language overlap? And again, next week you're going to see more of that. But let's get back and finish where we started. There may be the challenges of timing, but what's certain is Jesus' call. And what Jesus is doing in all of this is saying, endure, endure, endure. And here we have this last hope that God determines the extent of suffering. It says here, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. I mean, just catch that for a moment. God shortened the days of suffering. And you're like, well, is that the AD 70 days? Or is that future days for the elect? It's God who's in control of all the suffering for his elect. God is determining these. We're asking the wrong question about the when and missing the focus on who God is. So brothers and sisters, the sufferings that have come, the sufferings that are here, and the sufferings that will come are under the complete control of God. He is going to set the times and seasons for all things. And that's encouragement for us. That's encouragement for us to know that the suffering that incurs because of being a Christian is actually under his control. We can endure knowing that he has far greater knowledge and we can rest in him with our heart attached to him. And that's what Jesus wants for his disciples. Know that God is in complete control. So let me close with this. Recently, I've been trying something new. As some of you have noticed, I'm trying contacts. And just in case they fail, I've got these in under here uh, just to pull out any moment. Contacts are kind of tricky. And what I've realized over the past several weeks is that contacts like to adhere to a surface. And what's needed is, if you want to get the contact into your eye, you have to have it touching very little surface, although there's a need for it. You have to have it touching very little surface of the tip of your finger, and then you bring it right up to your eyeball, and you try to just layer it over the cornea of your eyeball, and soon it goes, and adheres to it. There has to be contact with the finger, but the goal is for it to attach itself to the eye. Right now, we live in a world, and our hearts are going to have contact with the world. You can't escape it. You can't jump out of the world. And yet, as Jesus takes his followers through these 24 verses here, he is pushing their hearts to just cling to who God is. We have to go through suffering. We have to go through trials. But here, get your heart surrounded around God is adhere to him. And there's hope in that. We endure not by focusing on the things that are taking place in the suffering. God is calling us to endure by keeping our hearts, our attention, our focus fixed on God. And let's do that this week. Let's pray.